It's time now for a special edition of Encounter with your host, Evan Fowler. Good afternoon and welcome to this special edition of Encounter. This is Evan Fowler on Bot Radio Network, and this is going to be a special edition. Uh, I have a, a very special guest in the studio with me. His name is Jim Downing, and uh, Jim is one of the few people who are still with us who uh, experienced what happened at Pearl Harbor many, many, many years ago, that day of infamy. And we're going to learn all about Jim's life. Uh, we're going to find out what it was like, the experience that he went through, we're going to learn about where he came from and his career in the military. Most importantly, we're going to talk about uh, his life as a believer in Jesus Christ. Jim, welcome to the studio. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. First of all, tell us a little bit about your roots. Where did you come from? You kind of came from uh, you know, around the Kansas City area. And, of course, we're talking to people uh, literally around the world, but also across the United States on various radio stations. And uh, your roots were kind of around here in the Kansas City area. Yes, I was born in uh, Oak Grove, which is uh, about 20 miles uh, to the east of Kansas City. In those days, money was kind of scarce. So I had a great uncle who was a doctor in Oak Grove. My father worked in uh, war plants. So he got assigned to Kansas City so that his uncle did, could deliver me free of charge. How about that? And, and t tell us a little bit about your, your early life, about your family, uh, you know, brothers, sisters, and so forth, and what that was like. My great-grandfather bought several thousand acres right out of the Louisiana Purchase over in northeast Missouri. My grandparents gave uh, part of that uh, land to my mother so that we moved to uh, Plevna, Missouri. My father built uh, a house for $2,400, got the prefab house from Sears and Roebuck. It's still standing. Wow. Uh, over 100 years old. That's right. Well, talking about over 100 years old, you, know, you, you weren't shy earlier when we were talking with one of our other staff members, and, and you're uh, 103. Right. Is that right? Yes, and uh, when you're young, you use fractions. When you get old, you use fractions. So <laughs> I'm uh, 103 and 7 twelfths. Oh, there you go. Very good. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, congrats. How do you feel? Great. That's, that's fantastic. That gives all of us uh, who are a little bit further behind you encouragement, I must mm -hmm. say. So tell us about uh, when did you leave home? Why did you leave home? At what age? In the small town of Plevna. It's in Knox County, up in the north, northeast part of the state. We had a, a two-room schoolhouse, and all we had in it for training age was uh, uh, some wall maps, a set of encyclopedias, and a dictionary. And, of course, blackboards were used extensively then. So I went to school there for my first 11 years. Then um, I went to the neighboring town of Novelty, another small town, for my senior year. I graduated from high school in the middle of the Great Depression. And there was no future for a young man in that city. I had worked three days in my life, got $1 for 12-hour days in there, worked on a farm. But I had a classmate who joined the Navy Every summer he came home on a new Harley, and uh, his pay, he's on a submarine, his pay was uh, $90 a month. Uh, my father was a bank president 
his salary was $90 a month with four children. So I saw in uh, Curtis, uh, he was a capitalist. <laughs> and uh, that was, uh, the Navy seemed to be a good way to get out and get on my own. And so the Harley Davidson had something to do with that, apparently. I, I did, yes. Uh, did you ever buy one for yourself? Never did. <laughs> okay. You're not planning to? No, not planning All right. to. All right. So you enlisted, I assume? Yes, I enlisted in 1932. And then where did it go from there? Tell us a little bit about the, the, the start of your Navy career and where it took you. Yes, the um, assignment of personnel wasn't very scientific. They posted on a board the uh, number of vacancies on each ship. And so uh, we pushed each other around to find the, the ship we wanted. So I chose our newest battleship, the USS West Virginia. So in the spring of 1933, I reported aboard. It was my home for 10 years. My goodness. Uh, and, and so tell us a little bit about where it went, what you did, what, what were your duties like? Yes, well, the uh, uh, Navy had a, a practice of a show the flag. So we went up and down both coasts and Hawaii and the islands of the Caribbean, Panama, all that. Uh, I remember our first visit to New York. It was, uh, enlightened a lot of us that come from the Midwest had never been in a big city. But I often uh, boasted and said, uh, I had a rich uncle. And he gave me a $45 million home to live in. <laughs> but along with um, 1,500 others, the first thing I had to get used to on the ship was the crowded uh, Everspace. Everybody had approximately six square feet of space. So walking around the ship, you were always elbowing with somebody. But um, I stayed aboard, as I said, for 10 years from the time I went aboard until... It was sunk at Pearl Harbor. Hmm. So the West Virginia, what kind of a ship was the West Virginia? Battleship. Battleship. A battleship is about the length of two football fields. And uh, get a little bit more specific for those of us who are not Navy savvy uh, or seaworthy uh, as to what a battleship's function is. It might seem obvious to some, but what, when do they deploy a battleship and what does it do? Yes, we had um, eight 16-inch guns that were designed to fight other battleships or could do uh, damage on land. The 16-inch guns, each barrel weighed 105 tons, mm. and the projectile was about 2,200 pounds. They were fired with uh, 500 pounds of powder, and uh, the projectile, as I said, went about 20 miles. My goodness. So they were fired one at a time because uh, uh, it put so much pressure on the ship, it would have damaged the ship if it fired more than once mm -hmm. at a time. Yeah, so somebody had to coordinate that, obviously. Well, uh, now, at some point you got married. Tell us about I, that. I got, uh, in 1935, I got acquainted with the Navigators. In fact, the Navigators started on the battleship West Virginia, and um I was in charge of the navigator ministry in the fleet, and there was a girl named Marina that was in charge of the high school Bible clubs. So we happened to be in uh, Delson Trotman, the founder's office, once at the same time. And uh, I took a liking to her and followed up, and uh, we were married in July 1941. 
just five months before the attack. Wow. 19, so you were there in Hawaii, yes, married she, there. She was also, yes. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Very good. Well, so you obviously had some history with the Navigators. Uh, my understanding is you were one of the early members. First was Lester Spencer, then uh, Gurney Harris, then two more guys. The fifth was uh, Virgil Hook, and I was number six. I was the only one that made a career on the Navy. All the rest of them, uh, except two, went overseas as missionaries. One to Africa, one to China, and one to Mexico. At what point in your life did you meet Christ? What, from what point in, in time would you say you became a believer? In 1935, which made me 22 years of age, um, I knew about Christ but um, I put it off. And what made you stop putting it off? Um, my um, idea of life was I wanted to come to the end of the day and say, I've lived today. If tomorrow is as good as today, I have no complaints. But I didn't find that in the Navy, even though it was a very adventuresome life. There's a verse in Proverbs uh, at which says uh, there's a way which seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Mm-hmm. Even in laughter, the heart is sorrowful, and the end of that mirth is heaviness. That described, uh, I've heard since uh, from a man named Pascal, that God has placed a, a God-shaped vacuum in everybody's heart. Right. And Ecclesiastes says that God has set eternity in our hearts. So uh, I was uh, not fulfilled. I did not have that vacuum filled. One morning, I was on a work detail with uh, Virgil, who is number five in the lineage, and we were heaving around 600 hunks of frozen beef. Got up in the morning at 3.30, had beans and cornbread for breakfast. I was not very happy in that. I didn't remember anything in my contract about that. <laughs> right. But here was Virgil. His face was shining, humming a tune, smile on his face. Seemed to be the happiest person he'd ever seen. So I made an observation that any enjoyment I ever had was a result of favorable outside circumstances. Mm -hmm. Here was a man that lived above circumstances. And I said, now that's what I want. So um, I received Christ because I wanted the quality of life that virginally other Christians had. So did you you ask him? Did, did did you ask him what what was going on with him? Why was he happy about being up at three thirty in the morning, uh, slinging around sides of beef? Yes. Well, uh, actually, the five that preceded me, all of them were very faithful to witness to me. So uh, I knew exactly why they were that, that fulfilled. So it uh, it was it was some friends, some colleagues, who uh, who were sharing their faith with you. Yes, that's what persuaded me. And that was uh, 82 years ago. Wow. So I'm just pointing that out because for our listeners, you know, uh, you know, sometimes they may not think that they're, they may be talking to friends or family members about the Lord, and they're not seeing any progress. It took a while, apparently, and it took more than one person, didn't it? Right. They all uh, witnessed to me very faithfully for about a year before I responded a year. That's that's uh, another point to note. So, so friends listening, 
If you've got friends, family members uh, that, that you've been witnessing to, uh, praying for, keep it up. That's an encouragement for us to be to persevere mm. and to, to follow what the Lord tells us. Well, so you were married in Pearl Harbor on uh, just, what, a few days before? Five months before the attack. Five months. Okay, five months. All right, let's talk about that. That's uh, You're wearing this jacket that has says Pearl Harbor Survivor on it. And by the way, uh, I'm talking with Jim Downing. Uh, you're listening to a special edition of Encounter here on Bot Radio Network. And we're going to be talking about uh, your book uh, so that those who are interested can follow up and get much more detail about what you and I are talking about, about your life and your experience. That book, by the way, is The Other Side of Infamy. Jim Downing is the author. So, Jim, tell us. Let's take us to that day on Pearl Harbor and, and walk us through the experience. Yes, uh, relations between the United States and Japan uh, were not good. But Japan told the President Franklin Roosevelt, we don't want a war. We want peace. We will send a special peace ambassador to iron out our differences. He landed in Pearl Harbor on Friday before Sunday that the islands attacked. Very deceitful. He knew that the Japanese fleet was just over the horizon. So we uh, were not as alert as we should have been because we uh, felt like the peace uh, talks were going to work. So my wife was fixing breakfast for uh, about eight other guests, military people. We heard the explosion, turned on the radio. The announcer said, we have been advised by Army-Navy intelligence that the island of Oahu is under enemy attack. The enemy has not been identified. So he came back on in a few minutes and said, the enemy has been identified as Japan. So we knew it was real. In the meantime, we jumped in our unit, got new uniforms, got in the car, and rushed back to our ships. Uh, by the time I got to my ship, it had taken nine torpedoes and uh, was sitting on the bottom. Pearl Harbor is a shallow harbor, about 40 feet deep. So we only had about five or six feet of water underneath us. But it was sitting on the bottom at a dangerous angle and everything above the waterline was on fire. So you can imagine what a shock it was to see my home of the last 10 years uh, sitting on the bottom and on fire. Mm -hmm. We were tied up to another battleship. So I got on at the Tennessee, got a fire hose, and tried to keep the flames away from the ready ammunition we had. I didn't want any secondary explosions. But as I had the fire hose in one hand, I saw bodies lying around, and uh, so they they kind of diverted attention to anything else. We had uh, fireproof name tags and fireproof lanyards, so I thought um, their parents will never know how they spent their last hours. So I went around cleaning up the name tags and memorizing them with the idea of writing a letter to their parents, which I did. Wow. Um, and how many? How many of those letters did you write? Um, probably not more than six or seven. But in the afternoon, I went to the hospital. They had a burn ward, and nearly a hundred men in suspension. 
They were hair burned off. They were blind and had severe burns on their bodies. So I did not know them. They were other ships. But I took a notebook and said, if you will give me your parents' address and dictate a, a paragraph, I'll see if they get it. So um, I spent about two and a half hours doing that. So I don't know how many, but I got lots of letters back mm -hmm. from parents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was going to ask you that, too, is what kind of responses you got. Do you remember any of the responses you got? Yes, they were. All the ones I got back, there were three that had erroneously been uh, notified their son had been killed. So they accepted that he was dead. Then they get this letter he dictated. It was amazing to me how optimistic these guys were. Never a word of criticism or complaint. They just said to their parents, I want to be all right. Hope to see you Christmas. Very optimistic. And most of them died that night. Hmm. So tell us then what happened after that, the aftermath of the attack. Uh, where were you? What were you doing? Yes, um, a, a warship is by construction supposed to be fireproof. Now, each one carries about a million gallons of crude oil to fire the boilers. And to make them look good, they were painted every year. So there's about a half inch paint. So the oil spilled on the water and caught fire, and then the paint was burning. But the fires were pretty well out by noon in that. So that's when I had nothing to do on the ship. That's when I went over to the hospital. Uh, that night, there were uh, a couple thousand of us that are homeless. We got uh, a mattress and a, and a pillow and went to the sports arena. There was a new sports arena there. And um, the benches made a good place to put our mattress. It was called the Block Arena. We renamed it the Mosquito Bowl because all the mosquitoes come and joined us that night. Mm -hmm. How long did it take for things to, to kind of be put back together in Pearl Harbor? And did, how long did you stay there before your next assignment? Yes. Um, the um, uh, Japanese concentrated their fire on the battleships. So uh, uh, all except the Arizona, the fires were all out by noon. We did not have radar in those days. We did not have satellites. We feared that they would make a second attack and maybe try to land. So all the military people got in position, got their weapons ready to repel an attack. Uh, I could not get any weapons. So uh, that's what I did, concentrated on the, the burn people in the, in the burn ward mm -hmm. until dark, and then I fed mosquitoes yeah, all night. There you go. So uh, what was your next assignment? Where did you go after Pearl Harbor? And how, and how long were you in the Navy after that? Yes. I um, remained with the salvage crew. The West Virginia was repairable. So we, they poured concrete over the holes and pumped it out. And we had it ready to run. By 1943, I stayed with the ship until 43. We came back to the States to have it rebuilt. And then I got orders to another battleship, the South Dakota. I had to go to school to um, be qualified for the ship. And uh, they needed another instructor. So I got pulled out of the classroom when I graduated and became an instructor in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. 
And so you were part. Of, you were in the Navy during that time as well. Yeah, yes, and okay. I was in the Navy for 24 years. Oh, okay. Also in the Korean War and the Cold War, mm-hmm. and also the uh, uh, 1954 H bomb test. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there's a lot of controversy, or there has been some controversy about the dropping of the two bombs on Japan. Tell us what you think about that. Your view. Yes, the Defense Department. A department calculated there would be one million American and Allied casualties on the beaches of Japan, and at least 400 Japanese, 400,000 would uh, die in defending it. So it's, um, uh, I think, pretty hard to make a, a moral choice in terms of the dead. But the two bombs, uh, they uh, killed less than a half million. So by using the bombs, the war was shortened, and over a million lives were saved in it. Now, um, I could have been one of those uh, million casualties, so there are none of us that weren't glad that the war was over Absolutely. in that. So morally, a tough choice, but I think the president, President Truman made the right choice to go ahead and end the war. Yeah, and that seems to be the, uh, the one very important point that, that many— uh, who are critical of that decision mm-hmm. fail to point out or even know about, for that matter. Yes. Um, you know, President Truman, I think he wrestled with that. He knew what the effects of it were going to be. But as I said, uh, I support the choice. Well, tell us a little bit about the book, The Other Side of Infamy by Jim Downing. What inspired you to write that book? And obviously, what we've been talking about for the last 20-some minutes is part of that book, but I'm sure there's much more there. About 10 years ago, I wrote down for my children and grandchildren some of the adventures I'd had in the Navy. What made me do that, that every once in a while I'd tell them a story, and they said, well, we never heard that before. So I had to make sure it's all in writing. So it covers my adventures in uh, uh, World War II, Pearl Harbor, the Cold War, Korean War, and uh, the H-bomb test. So a publisher got hold of it and said, uh, this deserves uh, wider circulation in your own family. So a couple of pu- publishers bid on it, and so I gave it to uh, uh, Nav Press Tyndale. And uh, it's really my adventures is what it is. And there's three chapters on the details of Pearl Harbor attack. Very good. Again, it's The Other Side of Infamy. Jim Downing, write that down and uh, and look for a copy of that. Well, let's talk a, a little bit about – there have been a lot of years since you retired from the Navy. What have you, what have you been doing all that time? I retired from the Navy in 1956. My retirement was effective at midnight on Sunday. On the next Thursday, I reported into the Navigator's headquarters at Glenner in Colorado. So I've, I've been on staff the Navigator's ever since. When I reached age 70, my job changed a little bit, but I still work for and represent the Navigators. So what, have you, what do you think about retirement? Because <laughs> it doesn't sound like you have yet. Well, um, I acted as a consultant to Dr. Ralph Winter, who's pretty well known for a while. I asked him how he felt about it, and he said, when you've worked for an organization most of your life, you don't retire, you just change jobs. Mm-hmm. That's right. Or retiring, I've uh, I've heard, and actually maybe this is an original, uh, I don't know for sure, but retiring is just 
getting a new set of tires and going in a different direction. <laughs> That's a good analogy. <laughs> because uh, I think the Lord wants us to keep being effective. You, you know, I, I think I heard uh, a, a conversation between Chuck Swindoll, I don't know if you're familiar with Chuck Swindoll, yeah. and Ravi Zacharias, both of whom are on the air here on Bot Radio Network. And I believe at the time, Chuck was about 75 years old, and Ravi is behind him a few years. But they were talking about what are the most effective years of your lives. And they were saying, you know, when you're in your 40s, you're still learning things. When you're in your 50s, you're beginning to get pretty good at what you do. When you're in your 60s, you're really good at what you do. And then beyond that, then people start they start stopping. They start retiring. They start, start quitting. But they have all of this knowledge and experience behind them, and it, and it just sort of gets lost. So, you know, here's, here's uh, Chuck Swindoll, who is, I think, probably now getting close to his 80s. I'm not sure. But he's still actively working. He's still in ministry. Uh, I, I would assume you would agree with that perspective. Yes, and uh, Chuck Swindoll was a Marine officer on the island of Okinawa. He got associated with the navigators out there, so we claim his as one of our own as well as his pastoral and author duties. I have a um, little uh, uh, message that I give relating to this, and it's called God's Formula for Fulfillment. It's four words. Each begins with the letter D. The first is, discover your gift. The second is, dedicate your gift to a higher cause. The third is, develop your gift to the maximum. And then the fourth is, deploy your gift. You mentioned all this experience and talent that's going to waste. I try to get people to exercise their gift as long as they have the health to do it. I think that that goes right in line with what uh, with the story I was just relating. So that's great. Well, as, uh, speaking of, uh, of stories and giving messages, I want to just let our listeners know uh, who are in the Kansas City area or or who are near the Kansas City area that at Colonial Presbyterian this upcoming Sunday at 9500 Warren Road, that's in Kansas City at 1045. You will be speaking, and what right. are you, just briefly, what are you going to be talking about? Well, I've talked to the pastor, and uh, we like questions and answers. So he's going to ask me questions that he thinks will be of interest to his congregation. That sounds fantastic. So again, that's Colonial Presbyterian Church, 9500 Warnell Road in Kansas City at 1045 this Sunday. Jim Downing will be there. Well, Jim, there's a whole lot more to your story than what we've just scratched the surface here, and I appreciate you coming by. You've been going all over the place to all sorts of different media outlets, and uh, we're appreciative that, that you shared your story with us. So God bless you. Yes, and it's an honor to be with you. So thank you very much. Thank you again. Once again, the uh, title of Jim's book, The Other Side of Infamy. This is Evan Fowler for Bot Radio Network. Thank you for listening to this special edition of Encounter. Encounter.